Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you for listening, but now I need you to share the message, share the Lincoln Project podcast. If you haven't already, rate it five stars, share with your friends, your family, anyone who you think might be interested. As always, all I could say is thank you, keep on listening, and now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Miles Taylor, a national security expert who previously served as chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. While at DHS, he published an anonymous essay in The New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct by Donald Trump. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, which revealed himself to be the author of the anonymous essay and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. In addition to his time at DHS, he worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill, as a CNN contributor, and multiple democracy reform groups. His latest book is Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump, and is available wherever fine books are sold. And he also has a brand new podcast, The Whistleblowers, inside the Trump administration, which can be heard on your favorite podcast app. Today, he's coming to us live on the road from his book tour in Nashville, Tennessee. Miles, welcome. Hey, Reed, thanks for having me. And if you hear people laughing in the background, they're probably laughing at my expense somewhere uh, down there at the book signing. No, listen, I get it. I've spent my life being laughed at at my expense. So, Miles, thank you for joining me. So, you know, you've got your new book out. And as I was reading it, you and I were talking right before we started recording that there is a lot of candor in this book. And I think that that is something that is too little seen across, you know, our society, but certainly too little seen in politics, that's really not surprising. But to expose yourself first from the obvious piece of being anonymous, right, in this op-ed that you wrote while you were in the Trump administration, and then writing the book, and then revealing yourself, it's revelatory not only, you know, by name, but also about your personality and all the things that have happened to bring you to the point where you are on a book tour today, having written a second book, that reflects on your time in the Trump administration, but also projects out to what's going to happen if Trump or someone like him achieves power again. So spend a little time taking us on that journey, because look, we all came from different places, right? You were a page. This is one thing I was fascinated about. You were a page in the U.S. House. I was a page in the U.S. House. So when you mentioned Peggy Sampson, like Peggy Sampson was my page director, right? So take us a little bit through your own journey to how you got to a place today where eight years into what Jeff Charlotte calls the Trumpocene era, at a very still tender age, not even yet 40, in a place where you find yourself in the eye of this maelstrom. Yeah, well, as always, Reed, thanks for having me. And, you know, it's been a bumpy road for me. You know, I will confess that right now, being involved in the political conversation in this country is quite literally the last thing that I want to be doing. <laughs> I enjoy being right. on with you. 
but I absolutely hate politics. I hate it. I have no interest in working in this industry or profession. If it is a profession, we've all seen it. The mental health toll of being in this space has gotten as probably as bad as it possibly could be. And I came up as a public policy person. So I got involved in politics because of 9-11. And after 9-11, as a young guy, I decided, look, I want to be involved in efforts to stop any day like that from happening again. So I went into the national security community. I was lucky to get my start like you as a congressional page sitting there in Congress as a high school junior in the back of the House chamber with the most beautiful upfront seat to democracy you could have. And in those post 9-11 days, that really inspired me because we saw a lot of unity and bipartisanship on Capitol Hill. But as I stayed in Washington, Reed, I really saw the corrosive impact of our politics overtake that post 9-11 glow. And when I was back on Capitol Hill, I mean, in the interim, I went to the Bush administration. I was at the Pentagon and the White House and DHS and, you know, working to protect the country. But by the time I came back to the Hill, as Trump was on the ascent in the Republican Party, it was clear it was a very different place than it was after 9-11. I was never a MAGA person. I was always sort of a, you know, Bush Republican. And, you know, I was a part of efforts to try to slow the guy down in 2015. Paul Ryan was speaker at the time. I was working in the House as a senior aide, you know, in House Republican leadership circles. And we put together this Trump inoculation plan, which clearly failed. We failed to stop the guy. When he won, I had no interest in going and serving in that administration, but I was persuaded by something. And this is where reasonable people absolutely can and should disagree with me. But mentors of mine, like John Kelly, who'd been a four-star Marine general, went in knowing this guy was unfit for the job he had just won. But with this perception that a so-called axis of adults could maybe a phrase which I believe you coined, right? Well, one of the people around that time, there was an article very early in the administration by Kim Dozier about how the axis of adults was going to keep Trump in check. And I was one of the sources behind that article. And I will say, in hindsight, I was woefully naive because I was really arrogant and believing, Reed, that we could be guardrails against this guy. And in the first year, it kind of fed that arrogance because there was just crazy shit that we talked Trump out of. You know, he wanted to pull out of NATO. He wanted to shoot women and children at the border to dissuade migrants from coming into the United States. I mean, you could just go down the list and we got him to walk those things back. We got him to water down his travel ban. And so we get to the end of the first year and we're thinking, you know, this is working. But we all know by year two, Trump systematically started to dismantle those guardrails. And so from within the administration, there was one thing I felt like was really important. That was I realized in meetings with Trump in the Oval Office, Situation Room at Air Force One, that the majority of his cabinet thought he was incompetent at best and a threat to democracy at worst, such that there were whispers about invoking the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. So why did I write an anonymous opinion piece? I felt like this was probably the most severe internal danger we'd faced inside the executive branch, really, frankly, in the country's history. And no one was talking about it publicly from within the administration. These cabinet secretaries were having these incredibly serious conversations about the president's mental fitness. And look, you know, I blew the whistle anonymously on that because I knew it would draw attention to the message instead of the messenger. Now, I'll say one thing and, and then I'll pause, Reed, but I'm a student of history and I'm a big fan of the Federalist Papers, which were the essays written to sell the U.S. Constitution to the public. Now, the founders wrote those essays anonymously, and they did it for a reason. 
They did it because they all had baggage and different profiles in government, and they didn't want it to be a debate about them. They wanted it to be a debate about the Constitution. Right, because so easily it can happen that the personality becomes the debate, not the substance. For sure. And so in writing this piece about the instability in the executive branch and presidential misconduct, I wanted to use that device. I wanted to use anonymity as a way to get people to focus on the message. And I pledged to myself, yeah, I'm going to quit here soon and unmask myself. But it became something much bigger entirely. And, and I'll be very frank with you. Part of the process I had to wrestle with was, did I have the guts to come forward? Because it became clearer to me once I unmasked myself that the other side, the MAGA side, would do everything possible to destroy my life. And I had to wrestle with that and decide whether I was willing to do that. And, and ultimately, you know, I came to the conclusion, I write about it in blowback, that I felt like anonymity itself was a danger to democracy. And that's certainly ironic coming from me, but that it was important for people to step out in their own names if we were going to stop this guy. I think that that's one thing that I want to touch on, which is, again, doing something under the auspices of being an insider. But, you know, what's interesting, too, though, is your point about that first year is, yes, you know, you took a step to say this is how bad it is. But, you know, for those of us on the outside, it wasn't exactly a mystery if you were paying attention, right? Even the stuff we didn't see, right, where it probably would have scared us more than the stuff we did see, right? It wasn't a good thing. And, and I just recall in Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book about Trump's term, they talk about, was it a bad meeting? It was the worst meeting until the next worst meeting happens. You didn't know what was going to be next, but you knew it was going to be worse than what just happened. Well, and that was the self-delusion I think a lot of us had. I mean, those people that went into the administration who hadn't voted for Trump, I mean, I hadn't voted for Trump, who were you know worried about him destroying the party, but even more so the country, we did delude ourselves into thinking that we could keep those guardrails strong. But as you note, meeting after meeting, it got worse and worse. And there was a motto inside the administration among this cabal of this so-called axis of adults. And that motto was, when saying no is no longer enough, it's time to go. What was really disheartening to me, though, is a lot of the people that I worked with who said that allowed their red lines to get crossed again and again and again. And towards year two, I was kind of like the sky is falling boy on the inside, trying to convince everyone to resign in mass. So there was this moment in the lead up to the 2018 midterms where the president was really becoming unhinged. I mean, I, we genuinely thought there were some pretty severe psychological issues. I mean, certainly you could make the case today. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but, right. you know, there was a moment where a bunch of us were very close to resigning in mass. And I deeply regret that I wasn't able to persuade the group to pull the trigger. And folks said, well, let's wait until after the midterms and then do it. But you know what happened after the midterms? Trump systematically fired or pushed out those people he knew were plotting against him. And we missed that moment to send a signal. And it only got worse from there. And it, it became clear to me you know, that I had been propagating this notion that don't worry, a group of unelected bureaucrats can protect you from this man and I was completely wrong. We couldn't. Only the voters could protect us from him. And ultimately, thankfully, they did in 2020. But one of the things that I've had to grapple with was by keeping this veil of anonymity, it was sending the message that, yeah, you know, you can attack this guy behind a shield and not have to own your words. 
But all that meant was it made it harder for other people to come forward. When I finally unmasked myself, I'll be honest, Reed, I was surprised at how it encouraged other people to come forward and gave them air cover. And my big regret was, holy shit, I should have done this so much sooner because then I could have said, look, the water's warm, come in. Instead of sending that message, now I'll add one caveat is I still do firmly believe that if people want to blow the whistle, that they have the right to anonymity. The intelligence community whistleblower who told us about Trump's phone call with Ukraine that led to his first impeachment is still thankfully able to protect his or her family and career by maintaining anonymity. That's appropriate. People should be able to make that choice and we should defend them. However, in this bigger political environment, I think it's really important for people to take their masks off and tell the truth because it lowers that price of dissent for other people. So a couple of things. One is not only you, but also Alexander Vindman did something like that. Cost him his career. He and his wife have been the target, like you, of so much, not only personal animus, but personal threats. You mentioned in your book too, and, and we've known this, former member of Congress, Liz Cheney. She doesn't have security now because her father used to be vice president. She has security now because there are people who, if had the opportunity, would do her harm. And I think that is one part of it. I want to get to the cost, the personal cost, but I do want to say one thing about the difference between those who went in with the idea of, and I believe you when you say, I can do this because I think it's an important thing. But see, you had the point at which you said, it doesn't matter if I'm here or not. The crazy is bigger than all of us. I can do better by saying, here's what you need to know. Here's who I am and why I'm doing it. But as you and I were discussing right before we started recording, we have dear friends, very dear friends who not only did not make that choice, but have that knowledge and choose to proceed with a pro-Trump, pro-MAGA worldview regardless. And I know you do, and I do. I have friends who were literally some of my best friends, if not my best friends, who I haven't spoken to in years. If I went to Washington, D.C. and saw them on the street and said, hey, can we stop and have a cup of coffee? They couldn't be seen in public with me, right? If somebody saw them, first of all, I don't know that they'd sit with me anyway, but it would harm their political prospects because I'm an apostate, and happily so, not only from the Republican Party, but D.C. itself. And that is a hard thing to see people you spent so much time with, especially in your younger years when, you know, we thought we were changing the world for the better. We thought we were protecting the world, right? And now you see, wait a second, you took the dark path. How could you do it? How could you do it? And you ask them that question and, you know, they either go silent or they get angry. And it, Miles, I'm sure you've seen it more up close even than I have. Yeah, it's something that I think is a pretty common theme in this space is the folks who decide to speak up, and no one has to play the violin for me when I say this, but I have to grapple with some pretty severe consequences. I mean, in, in our case, like the Vinmans, like others, I ended up, as I often say, losing my home, my job, my marriage, my personal security, my life savings. I mean, on the eve of the 2020 election, I was, you know, in a safe house in Northern Virginia under armed guard and with a pistol under my pillow. Like those were the circumstances, you know, I spent the end of the 2020 campaign because of the severity and the credibility of death threats. But you point to friendships, and that's actually one of the things that hits the hardest is how much this corrosive moment in our politics has ripped households apart and families apart. And, you know, I talk about one person in particular in this book, someone who was a very close friend 
during the Trump administration, Chad Wolf, who ended up becoming the acting secretary of Homeland Security. And I was really reluctant to talk about any of these personal stories because my message is really about the danger of Trump and a savvier successor, a copycat, returning to the White House. But it's important to understand where the dividing lines are and how people within the Republican Party who know better are still defending this guy. You know, Chad was one of those people who for years we worked together and we held this same very dim view of the president. We saw him as a threat. We saw him as unstable. We talked about it not monthly or weekly. We talked about it hourly. I mean, this was a constant conversation. I have the receipts. I mean, you know, we were a whole part of that conversation. And then when I came out against Trump, you know, Chad had said to me, just keep my name out of your mouth and I'll keep yours out of mine you know, just focus on him. I said, of course, this isn't about you. This is about Trump. And it was a real gut punch to see after I unmasked myself, came out against the president, you know, Chad went down to the border and stood next to him and said, I'm extremely disappointed in Miles Taylor. He never said anything bad about the president. You know, he released these statements blasting me, said, you know, he only praised Donald Trump. And he sent me a private message and he said, you know, I have an audience here I have to satisfy. And that was the worst way I've ever lost a friend, is him saying, sorry, I got to do this to keep the president happy. Not, I got to do this because I think you're wrong. And Donald Trump's a good guy. It's, I got to do this because I have an audience to satisfy. And that collective anonymity is what we are seeing still in the GOP. People who privately will tell you one thing, the man is a danger. He's a threat. He's destroying the party and the country. And then they go out and they bear hug him. And if we keep doing that, we're going to make the same civic mistake we did last time. But I don't think we can survive a second go round. And, and, and that's what blowback's about is honestly, if you think a second term of Trumpism and MAGA will be bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So back in December of last year, Miles, I was invited to this dinner in Washington, D.C., And as I might have said before on the show, it was the kind of dinner I was never invited to when I was a Republican, and I'll probably never be invited to again by Democrats. And, you know, they were very senior, very credible people, you know, including, you know, very senior reporters. And they were talking about DeSantis has to run now. And it's all sort of in the context of a chessboard, right? There's a game at play, which is not unusual for Washington, D.C., or frankly, any center of power throughout history, right? There's always these moves, and a lot of them are illusory or even imaginary. But they said, well, you know, if Trump wins in 24, you know, the Democrats will have to come back in 28, and then it'll be a wide open primary. And I started laughing, and they all looked at me, and they said, what? I go, if Trump wins in 24, there is no 28. I don't know what y'all are talking about. They looked at me like a second head had grown out of my shoulders. And I'm like, y'all can come visit me in some other country. But like, I'm telling you, like, you think this is normal. It's not normal. And it's amazing. Even to this moment, Miles, eight years past when the guy came down the escalator, somehow they think even if he were to win again, 
somehow that the organism would reshape itself, would heal itself, and that how somehow he would just sort of be normal again, right? Like they just memory hold the four years of his presidency and that he'd come back, he'd be fine. Maybe he'd learned his lesson, right? Or now's the time he's become president, right? Or whatever the cockamamie thing is. But to your point, him coming back to power, you talk a lot about in very important detail about what the MAGA movement is. And I think we've not often enough discussed what the movement is, is, you know, as you detail the kinds of things that a second administration would do, this schedule F, right, with the bureaucrats and what Bannon wants to do in these shock troops, right? And Newsweek did a story, I think either late last year or earlier this year about what a second Trump term would look like. And they've learned all the bad lessons and they've learned how to short circuit the powers and the levers of government. So take us a little bit into how you see that. You know, one of the things I wanted to do with this, frankly, as much as I could, is take myself out of these projections of a second term. If someone thinks that I just hate the president, then don't take it from me. Take it from the other people who I served with, who served as his lieutenants. And so over the course of two years, I went and interviewed and spoke with Trump's closest confidants, cabinet secretaries, people who worked with him for years, senior Republican members of Congress. It's largely Republican voices in this book, painting a very clear-eyed picture about what a second term of Trump or a copycat in the MAGA movement would look like. And I thought I'd heard it all and frankly was very surprised at just the level of destruction that otherwise very rational moderate people in their tone and demeanor were forecasting for a second term. Specifically, what am I talking about? You know, I had conversations with folks from the intelligence community, people like Fiona Hill, who'd been a top advisor to Donald Trump, his Russia advisor, worried that America's spy powers in the intelligence community in a second term would be weaponized for revenge. I mean, specifically, there was a point during the administration, Trump wanted to wiretap his own staff. I had intelligence community officials tell me they believe in a second term. He'll actually try to use the spy agencies to go spy on political rivals, which if he installs the right lieutenants in those places is something he could do. The weaponization of the justice system, people talking about plans to, in a second term, appoint an array of special counsels to go prosecute political rivals, to go prosecute people who had spoken out against Trump. You know, the deployment of the military at home, this was another very bizarre thing that I didn't expect is that conversations that I was privy to in the first term about creating a mercenary force came back with a vengeance after I left. And what do I mean by that? Think about Vladimir Putin and the Wagner group in Russia, his own private mercenary force. Donald Trump wanted to do the same thing. And I had defense officials telling me, look, in a second term, they'll bring that back to life. He wants to create his own army. And I had a, a lifelong public servant, a counterterrorism official, a very senior official say to me in the book, it would be a junior Gestapo. I mean, that's the type of language you would never expect to hear in the United States of America. And here's a nonpartisan top official saying, no, that's what they wanted to create. He wanted a junior Gestapo and there's plans on the shelf to do it. I mean, this is real life we're talking about here. And, you know, these comments from folks, I think painted a much uglier picture than I expected. And to your point, Reed, is one that makes me feel like if they retake the White House, that's it. Democracy's guardrails will be corroded. And, and in the book, I go guardrail by guardrail from the judiciary to the intelligence community and the military and the legislative branch and talk to these folks about what would happen. And, you know, 
I'm not out here trying to sell books to make money. I'll be honest with you. It'd be much more profitable for me to have been out of politics entirely. In my first book, I, you know, I donated the vast majority of the proceeds away. What I would urge people to do is, even if they think they know it all about what would happen in the second Trump term, they probably have friends or family members who are still persuaded it won't be that bad because millions of Americans are still thinking about voting for the guy. This book is what they need. They need to see in vivid detail what another term would look like because it's not what you think. And the things they were prevented from doing in the first term, they want to do in the second. And I'll mention one more, read that really was pretty grotesque to me. And that is, I kind of tried to check the boxes and make sure I talked to senior officials that Trump had appointed at all the big departments and agencies. And so I went to the people who were running the Department of Veterans Affairs under Trump. And I actually didn't expect to hear much from them. I hadn't heard a lot of controversies out of the VA during the administration, except for some personnel drama. And so I went and had these discussions. And what I was told was really sickening. And that is during the first term, there was a plan in place to detonate, in their words, the Department of Veterans Affairs. And it would have gotten rid of the veteran social safety net. And a bunch of the senior officials there said this would have thrown hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of veterans out on the street, cost a lot of them their lives. And I couldn't understand why did they want to detonate veterans health care? Well, it's because early on in the administration, Donald Trump found out that the Department of Veterans Affairs had the second biggest budget in the government, $250 billion. And as one official said to me, he hates veterans. He thinks of them as, quote, lazy malingerers. And he wanted to use that money somewhere else. And remember that he had been caught saying that, you know, they were suckers. Suckers and losers. The people who died in the Normandy invasion, he had said when he visited France that they were suckers and losers for not having survived. And so his animus towards veterans is well known. And this is someone who, you know, if I recall my chronology right, John Kelly, four-star Marine general, lost a son in combat, a lieutenant in combat in Iraq, right? So this is a guy who has had personal loss from this as he's probably sitting there listening to this guy say that. And, you know, even beyond John Kelly, I mean, multiple officials have confirmed those accounts. And I was shocked to have even more people in this book go on the record to detail their fears that Trump was going to, again, pull the rug out from underneath veterans because he had such disdain for them. And he wanted to use that money elsewhere. And what they told me is the only way they were able to talk the Trump White House out of detonating the veterans social safety net wasn't because veterans would be tossed on the street, wasn't because, as they warned, veterans would die by the tens of thousands. It was that it would cost Trump reelection because it would hurt him with the veteran community. And ultimately, they decided we'll wait till a second term in order to do this. And I think that's a warning people need to hear is these are families that have sacrificed their careers, people who've sacrificed their lives to protect our country with their blood. And Trump is willing to leave them out to dry because he wants to use the money somewhere else. That's the type of thing we're up against. Well, and I remember vividly being at a conference with a bunch of very senior national reporters when Trump in what was it, the summer of 2015 made his remarks about the late Senator John McCain. You know, I like people who weren't captured. That's going to be the end of him. Remember, he attacks a gold star family. That's going to be the end of him. But, you know, this is the weird dichotomy in MAGA land, Miles, which is the people who he is willing to hurt the most 
are also often the people who are most supportive of him. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I remember this well when my friend Olivia Troy came out. There was a period in 2020 where I became very panicked that officials from the administration who I knew thought the president was an enormous danger hadn't come forward. And so I, I went on this blitz to try to go recruit as many of them as possible. And, and one of those people I sat down with was Olivia Troy, who'd been Mike Pence's Homeland Security Advisor. We'd known each other during the administration, and she led the COVID task force until she resigned in protest. When Olivia came out against Trump, she recounted this anecdote from, I believe, sitting in the Oval Office with the president, where as they're briefing him on the severity of the COVID crisis, he expressed relief that he was going to be kept at a greater distance from his supporters. And as L Olivia recounted, he said, I no longer have to shake the hands of these disgusting people because now he could say his excuse was that he had to protect his health and the people around them. And that moment was so deeply unsettling for Olivia. When she recounts it in that video, she's emotional about it. She's like, look, he thought his own supporters, he saw them as disgusting people and he puts on this act. And that's, I think, the message that tends to resonate the most with any MAGA folks that there might be a hope of getting them to ditch the Trump tribe is showing them that he thinks they are suckers. He's taking advantage of them. He's exploiting them. It's the one message that sometimes works. And, and I'm hoping one other one that works, Reed, that I really wrestled with, rather to include in this book or not, was the president's comments about women. And in particular, his own daughter. I mean, I included a story in here that I had thought I wasn't going to because to me it was so grotesque. And that is, you know, Trump used to talk about Ivanka's breasts and her backside and, you know, how if she wasn't his daughter, he'd want to have sex with her. This was recounted to me by his chief of staff, John Kelly. But in my mind, I felt like, you know, as much as this doesn't feel relevant to politics, it's relevant to that man's character. And if Maka supporters are going to draw the line somewhere. I've got to think they draw that line at incest. You know, you can love Trump's policies, but my God, a man who has this documented history of flagrant incestuous comments has got to be disgusting to any healthy, normal human being. And that's who we're talking about. And there's not some dividing line between his personal character and his public behavior. It's just a fluid line. And we can't afford to put someone of that deficient character, certainly back in the Oval Office. And I'll add that, you know, while I was writing this book, I felt like these comments about what would happen in the different departments and agencies sounded hyperbolic because everyone in every agency that worked for him that I spoke to talked about how in a second term, the administration would use those agencies to exact revenge against rivals. And then Trump himself comes out a couple of months ago and says the quiet part out loud like he always does, I am your retribution. The theme of his reelection effort right now is revenge. And the operative term for a second Trump administration or a second MAG administration will be revenge. And so let's talk a little bit about that because we here at the Lincoln Project have had plenty of our own experiences with that. You know, it, we found out probably in the middle of 2021 that Mark Meadows, you know, after we helped derail one of their big law firms in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election, when we knew, as you probably did, that Trump would not go quietly, that Meadows sent an opposition research file to Bill Barr at the Justice Department and said, here's the Lincoln Project information I told you about right now. Barr pulled the parachute 
shortly thereafter because, you know, he realized that this was a sinking ship and that bad things were going to happen and he wanted to get out soon enough so he could still claim some sort of legitimacy. But I think, you know, let's talk about this. I mean, I worked at DHS. Now, I was in FEMA. So of the 250,000 people at DHS, I was one of the 5,000 who weren't in some sort of law enforcement, right? But DHS, the Justice Department and its subsidiary, you know, whether or not that's the FBI or ATF or anybody else, you know, obviously the intelligence community, the Pentagon, these are the, what they call the power ministries. And these are the places that we saw him try and massively reorganize really at the very end when he was trying to maintain power. But tell us a little bit about your fears for those, because those are the places that, you know, to your point about revenge and retribution, those are the places where authoritarians, once they get into office, they dominate those and then turn them inward on their opponents. I mean, throughout history, you basically see what in other countries is called the interior ministry. It's what we call the Homeland Security Department. You see that's one of the first places in an early autocratic regime that gets weaponized for political purposes. And there's no doubt that in a second term, DHS would be that. And I talked to a number of folks in the book who spelled that out. And I'll get to that in a second. But let me jump back to a comment you made, read about trying to use the Justice Department to go after his enemies. You know, when I published this opinion piece against Trump from within the administration in the New York Times, First Amendment protected speech, it was a criticism of his behavior, and it was me calling out presidential misconduct. Within minutes of the op-ed publishing, Trump tweeted a seven-letter tweet. He wrote in all caps, treason, question mark. To him, First Amendment protected speech and dissent is treasonous. He then sent the Justice Department after me. When I unmasked myself at a rally, he said the classic dog whistle to his supporters, bad things are going to happen to him, which was him saying, I want you to do bad things to this guy. And they did. And he went further in that speech. He, you know, at another rally, he said he should be prosecuted. And as I was told by people at the time, they were preparing a prosecution against me. Again, let me be clear. Yes, I turned against the president. Yes, I felt like he was of deficient moral character and called him out for it. But my only crime was talking about it publicly, which in the United States is not a crime. That's First Amendment protected speech. And ironically, he was effectively proving my point. I mean, my point was this man that I've worked for is using the powers of the government in a way that's at best corrupt and at worst illegal to punish the political opposition. And in responding to it, he did exactly that. He threatened to wield the powers of his office, potentially unconstitutionally, to punish a political rival. So in a second term at DHS, you know, the people that, uh, in addition to you know, me recounting the things that I believe they would bring back in a second term, you know, a number of other people talked to me about there were plans on the shelf to go try to use DHS forces for political purposes. For instance, you know, one person, Mark Harvey, who'd been a senior uh, official on the National Security Council, said in a second term, they would deploy DHS forces as, quote, ballot watchers during votes, essentially to intimidate the political opposition from voting against the Republican side and the MAGA side. This is the type of thing you would expect to hear in a third world country is domestic security forces being deployed in the streets, again, as, quote, unquote, ballot watchers. And there was a lot of examples of it that were disturbing. In fact, another official said, you know, they'll turn the U.S. counterterrorism 
apparatus against political rivals. And I've spent most of my career in the national security community. We built a very sophisticated apparatus to watch list terrorist suspects, you know, shake them down at the airport to see if they've got derogatory information on them that would expose a terror plot. All of these tools. The individual I spoke to said, look, prepare yourself for pocket litter searches of Democratic officials at airports. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look, CBP has the authority when you come into the country to search your laptop and your phone, you know, and information on you. He said, this is the type of thing that could be turned against Democratic rivals is to try to find compromising information on them. And again, these are very serious people, lifetime public servants saying this, not political appointees, not pundits saying this, national security officials forecasting the possibility in a second Trump administration of them turning those counterterrorism tools against adversaries. And the last thing I'll add on that point, Reed, is a lot of us, like you and me, joke darkly about how in a second Trump administration, you know, we'll be sent to the terrorist prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Gitmo. And it's not so far-fetched. Why? Because when I was in the administration, Trump talked about using Gitmo, where the 9-11 hijackers, uh, planners are housed, as a place to go send people he didn't like. He wanted to send migrants, innocent migrants to the terrorist prison at Gitmo to send a message. And the only reason he didn't wasn't because it would be probably illegal, unconstitutional. It's because the prison wasn't big enough. So, you know, I can see him going after political opponents in a second term. I mean, there's a man who got elected on the champ, lock her up in a second go around. He will follow through. Well, and, you know, we saw that a little bit in 2020 or maybe a lot. Actually, I don't want to downplay it a lot, which is you mentioned Chad Wolf, who was acting secretary of DHS, right? Remember, they sent DHS officers, I don't know who they were, into Portland. Why did they do that? They claimed to keep the peace. They knew that sending federal officers in there, federal agents in there, was going to cause a response. There would be a demonstration that would ultimately be caught on television that they could use to say this, you know, Democrats are burning the cities down, right? Communists, Antifa are burning the cities down. That same year, remember, when Trump's famous or now infamous march across Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Look what they were willing to do. And you see that they had lined up Millie, Esper, you've got Barr there, you know, with his shirt untucked, talking about, yeah, like he even looks like an Eastern European minister for internal security in that picture, right? He knew exactly what he was doing, or they knew exactly what they were doing. His kids and his family were in on it, right? Ivanka famously carried the Bible in her purse, right? They all knew what they were doing. And just to go back, I mean, think about, you know, on the mercenary force, right? Betsy DeVos is his education secretary. Her brother, Eric Prince, was the founder of Blackwater, a mercenary company. We can call them security contractors or whatever we want, but they were mercenaries, right? You know, he would, he could absolutely build these things. And, you know, $250 billion, Miles, buy a lot of mercenaries. Anyone who's listening right now who would think that this is outlandish, I'm just going to tell you, I was there. The plans were there. The president, while I was working in the administration, made direct contact with Eric Prince to have conversations about potentially creating a mercenary force that could be at his direction. In fact, and then the discussions came up again and national security officials had to frantically turn them off because of their worry about how this type of authority, unfettered, unchecked authority could be abused by the president. But you point to those forces that DHS sent uh, into Portland under the Trump administration. They're called BORTAC, the Border Patrol Tactical Units, which are the sophisticated counterterrorism units normally that are deployed at the border to try to weed out the most dangerous cartel leaders, terrorist operatives who might try to sneak into the United States. And 
One of the people I spoke to for the book is a man named Tom Warwick, who was one of the top counterterrorism officials during the Trump administration. And his quote was, he said, you know, these guys are the Delta force for keeping terrorists out of the United States. And that that comment I mentioned earlier, he went on to say, quote, you cannot turn them into a junior Gestapo. You don't want people who look like they are working on the Death Star roaming the streets of the United States. But that was a conscious decision by the Trump administration to send a message Unquote. And and Tom went on to say, you know, Portland wasn't a one off. If they come back to office, you will see forces like Bortac deployed throughout the United States. And again, that's something you would only imagine seeing in a foreign dictatorship and not in the United States of America. And one other aspect of DHS that I know would be politicized if a MAGA leader retakes the White House is emergency aid. And it wouldn't strike you as the type of thing to be politicized. When there's a hurricane or a tornado or a wildfire, it's the legal obligation of the federal government to come to the rescue for the American people, regardless of their political leanings. But during the Trump administration, the president regularly wanted to withhold aid during disasters to blue states as leverage to get them to exact concessions. He said it in Puerto Rico. He said those people don't like me and he didn't want us to disperse the aid. He said it during the California wildfires. You know, he said it in other parts of the United States. If it was a blue state, he wanted to withhold the aid to get leverage and reward red states. And I say in blowback, this would be the equivalent of you calling 911 and them saying, well, before we dispatch a squad car for your emergency, are you registered Democrat or a Republican? I mean, it's unimaginable. But it's what the president wanted to do was to politicize emergency aid. And you would see that in a second term. We saw it during COVID, too. Remember, I mean, Kushner famously said they're blue states too bad for them. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that, in, you know, he was quoted as saying that in Vanity Fair. And accordingly, half a million people died. So, you know, and I think this is an important distinction. We try and tell people this when we talk about this, right? That MAGA, the Make America Great Again piece, is a movement. It is an authoritarian movement, and Donald Trump is its leader. And the Republican Party is its political wing. It is the part of the movement that nominates candidates, elects people, et cetera, et cetera. There are also the front groups led by people like Stephen Miller. There are the media types like Steve Bannon, Fox News, OANN, Tucker Carlson. There are the financiers that are behind all this, right, which are so often dark money people. You know, there are the fellow travelers, a lot of the people that you and I were talking about earlier. But the one thing that you note, and I think this is important, we're seeing it, but I think it's also important to really dive a little deeper, is we're already seeing the tendrils, the poison dripping down into states and localities where more and more MAGA-aligned, which also comes along with QAnon and white nationalism, is already dripping down into our states and counties and cities. There is no doubt that the state-by-state MAGA takeover of the Republican Party machinery is largely complete. And it was a systematic effort from the top down, and they've been very successful in that, in taking over the GOP apparatus around the country. But the other phenomenon that I think makes the conditions right for Trump to either retake the White House or for a copycat to emerge is the fact that the GOP base has also been radicalized towards MAGA views. And I actually use that term very academically and specifically. What do I mean by Trumpism and MAGA? I mean two things. It's a political movement. That's one. 
has a favorable view of the weaponization of the levers of power for partisan purposes, and two, has active disdain towards the foundational guardrails of democracy, has an antithetical view towards those guardrails and actually sees them as inhibitions rather than protections. And so those two facets combined really are defining of the MAGA movement and Trumpism. And we are seeing the GOP base become very amenable towards those views. And, and a lot of us, you know, me for much longer than you read, hoped that Donald Trump was just an aberration. He was a severely deranged man, a very, very sick man, but an aberration that wasn't representative of the wider party. But now when you look at surveys from Pew or NPR or the University of Chicago that go and study what the GOP electorate now believes, they've largely been radicalized towards these MAGA viewpoints. And there's three things I point to all the time that are so indicative of this. And it's the mainstream embrace of conspiracy theories from QAnon to the big lie to the great replacement theory. Three things that are all demonstrably false, that are provably conspiracy theories, have gone from fringe political notions to now being embraced by a majority of GOP voters. And which have, in very public and sad fashion, led to acts of mass terror and mass death in America. The vitriol has jumped the tracks to violence, and that was very foreseeable. I mean, you know, in the national security community, when we look at foreign nation states that might have civil strife or instability, one of the first indicators is mass acceptance of conspiracy theories. Because when the notion that the system doesn't work spreads widely, then people start to go around the system. What do they do? They attack the system violently. And what we are seeing in the United States right now is favorable attitudes towards political violence that are hitting levels that we've never seen in modern history as people expressing a positive view towards attacks on the government. We're seeing it manifest itself into what I say in the book is the highest level of chatter regarding threats against public servants that we've seen in modern history, even worse than after 9-11. And I mean, Reed, you and I remember it viscerally from in Washington, D.C., the sense of threat against the seat of power in the federal government. Well, that threat level is much greater against public servants than it even was just after 9-11 from terrorists. And that's because we have a domestic extremism pandemic in the United States. But it's so hard for, I hate the word average, the individual American to one, believe and to accept that the biggest threat could be inside our own borders, that no one wants to believe that so many of our fellow Americans you know, and we were asked about this. Rick and I were asked about this at an event recently. You're, they're like, you're talking about millions of Americans, potentially tens of millions of Americans. And we're like, yes. And like, how can you believe that? I'm like, don't believe us. Believe the research in our own 501c4. The Lincoln Democracy Institute just did a massive survey, 17,000 people across all 50 states and found the same thing. Like to your point about all the research about aberrations, this is not the aberration. This is now the norm. It is now the norm. And, you know, we can get past the political talking points of it, because like you just said, the data just shows it from a public safety and national security perspective. The data is very, very alarming about threats, not just to federal officials, federal, state and local officials. I mean, at the federal level, it really is very jarring. I mean, according to the U.S. Capitol Police in the five years after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, the number of recorded threats against elected member of Congress increased more than 400 percent. It was up to about 10,000 threats in 2021. This was not an accident as we had a president fanning the flames of this, but it also went down to 
state and local officials, we've seen those numbers soar. I mean, I think the last data I saw was that one in three election workers, poll workers, volunteers, mind you, in the United States fear for their personal safety while they're volunteering at the polls. I mean, 10 years ago, this would have been an absurdity is to say they feared for their lives to just go, you know, volunteer on voting day. Right. And remember, in last summer's January 6th hearings, remember that all of those people, whether or not it was the poll workers from Atlanta or Rusty Bowers from Arizona, Raffensperger, any of them, right? And you are among them, even if you weren't at that dais, talked about how their lives had been systematically threatened. Their families have been threatened. Their kids had been threatened. Their mothers, their grandmother couldn't walk down the street anymore. You know, Raffensperger's daughter-in-law, his son had passed away. Like she was being harassed with death threats, right? They're sitting outside your house with bullhorns. But on the poll worker front, I think this is important too, because this brings it back to what's going on at the state and local level in a state like Texas, right? Where maybe Greg Abbott is the best exemplar or is the exemplar of the person who knows better and does it anyway, Miles. They have made it so that poll workers are more liable for actions they take to prevent disruptions than, quote unquote, elections observers who attempt to disrupt polling places. The person trying to protect democracy is now on the line, and the person trying to disrupt democracy now has more protections. And that's in law. That's a perfect example of how Trumpism has spiraled beyond the control of its namesake. I mean, what we are seeing is these officials take the weaponization of the government further than even Donald Trump was willing to take it. And, you know, I talked about two examples of this in the book of policies Trump was talked out of that now his acolytes have picked up and taken forward. One is, you know, he called me in February of 2019, me and the Secretary of Homeland Security, and wanted us to, quote, bus and dump migrants into democratic cities around the country. He wanted us to take migrants from the borders, you know, like political pawns, drop them in democratic cities to overflow social services. And then specifically, he said he wanted us to pluck the, quote, murderers, rapists, and criminals out of those flows and make sure we sent them into those cities to cause chaos. Now, I went and talked to the administration lawyers, and guess what? No surprise, Reed. They said, yeah, that would be illegal. And I put the chief of staff at the White House, you know, Stephen Miller, senior advisor, a whole range of people on an email and conveyed this and ultimately Trump backed down. What's happened since the Trump administration? Greg Abbott in Texas, Ron DeSantis in Florida have picked up this bus and dump migrants plan with alacrity and they've done it all around the country. They've taken it further than even Donald Trump did. A second example would be the FBI. I mean, after Trump fired James Comey, he wanted to cleanse the building. He wanted to wipe out the FBI to prevent investigations into him and his movement. And ultimately, Trump was talked out. I mean, John Kelly again and again and again had to persuade Trump to leave his hands off the FBI or he would be impeached. Now, ultimately, he was impeached anyway. But that dissuaded Trump from taking a wrecking ball to the nation's premier investigative agency. Well, now, post-Trump administration, that wasn't a peculiarity. It's now a leading talking point of senior Republicans is the destruction of the FBI and cleaning house at the FBI. They are taking Trumpism further than he was even able to. And that's why I actually think the threat is greater now than it even was during Trump's presidency, because they're willing to go further next. Let's do this. So take me through the next 17 months in your mind as we wrap here, because, you know, from our perspective, if you've got a man who is, in our view, the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party with at least an even money shot of being reelected, 
you know, he's already tried to overthrow the government once. He's always said, even in 2016 or before the Iowa caucuses, right? Like, if I lose, it was stolen from me. He will say that again. Joe Biden didn't beat me once. There's no way he can beat me a second time. Take us through that. I'm really glad you point to that, Reed, because we can project with some confidence that it could get pretty bad. And I don't claim to be Nostradamus, but two years before the 2020 election, I was talking about this and I was talking about the concerns that if Trump lost, he would not go quietly or easily. In fact, I said in the book a warning, that is why Trump is seeding a narrative that coups are afoot and that a rebellion or a civil war might be in the offing. Those were the words he was using, laying the groundwork for contesting the election. And I said in the book, this is something that could end violently and tragically. And it did. It was completely foreseeable. So now with that data point and with January 6th having happened, what happens if he loses again? What happens if he loses in the primaries? What happens if he loses in the general election? Once again, he's not going to go quietly or easily. And that's why I think we need to take the words of his supporters very seriously. And this is a lesson you and I read learned in the post 9-11 years when we were monitoring foreign terrorist threats is it was a mistake to assume what Al Qaeda was going to do. And we learned that the hard way. We needed to actually listen to their words, listen to bin Laden's words to forecast what they were going to try to do. Similarly, when you look at domestic extremist groups that supported MAGA and Trump, you got to take them at their word. And there was this hearing that the January 6th Select Committee did where Jason Van Tottenhaw, the guy who was the spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, testified. And he said very, very clearly in his testimony that basically the intent of the insurrection was to spark a civil war. He said this could have been the spark that started the new civil war. And his quote was, we need to stop mincing words and just call things what they are. It was going to be an armed revolution. And if you you know look at last year when the FBI raided the ex-president's home, talk of civil war exploded on social media. Twitter posts with the term skyrocketed something like 3,000%. His supporters really want that to happen. And I think the thing I'd leave you with about what that looks like is a quote that I think you and I have shared a number of times is all the way back in 1875. They asked Ulysses S. Grant when he was speaking to a group of military veterans about what would happen if America split in two again. So, you know, this is a decade after the Civil War ended. And he has this really powerful quote where he said, you know, if we are to have another contest in the future of our national existence, I predict the dividing line will not be Mason and Dixon's, but between patriotism and intelligence on the one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. And I point to that quote because the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories that we are seeing is really laying the groundwork for someone like Trump to contest the election again and have it be vastly more dangerous. We saw this in Nazi Germany in the 1920s where Hitler's stabbed in the back myth gave people a reason to elect a hyper-populist extremist Nazi political party. And we really should learn that lesson of history. And, and that was, a you know, that was 100 years ago this decade. Um, and I think the parallels are quite eerie. So, Miles, before we let you go, because I know you are on your book tour, tell us a little bit about your podcast. We launched this podcast with iHeartMedia, and I'm so grateful for the team that put it together. 
Best Case Studios, Arc Media, and iHeart. And the goal was really to go back in time and tell these propulsive and frankly, surprisingly emotional stories of government whistleblowers who tried to sound the alarm about corruption during the Trump administration. So people like Andy McCabe at the FBI and Alex Vindman and Olivia Troy, and even folks that you you know wouldn't have expected, like Stephanie Grisham, who stayed the whole time, but then turned on Trump in the end. This whole range of figures who have very different experiences and, and very different you know public perceptions of them that are out there. And what we wanted to do was tell those stories, but also see what that might tell us about the future. What warnings can we learn by going back through those sometimes successful and sometimes failed attempts to blow the whistle during the Trump years? I will confess that I was I was leveled by some of these conversations. You know, people that you think have been out there, you know, publicly, you know, living the dream since they blew the whistle. I mean, to a person, these are folks who lost everything in the process of trying to shine a light on corruption. And what was really kind of inspiring, though, Reed, was talking to folks and then afterwards asking them, you know, after all you went through, do you regret what you did? And not a single person we spoke to did. They were all glad they ultimately blew the whistle. Now, a lot of them wish they had done it sooner. You know, you talk about folks like Stephanie Grisham, who just said, you know, I was brainwashed and I should have come forward years sooner. But none of them regret ultimately turning against a tribe that they saw as corrupt. And that was really powerful to hear that. So very excited for people to listen to these stories. And two of those episodes are out now and they'll be coming out once a week through September. Well, great. And I just want to thank you for joining me. And I'll tell you this, you know, because we started the episode with candor and we should end it with candor. When you finally did unmask yourself, right? I don't believe I was that kind to you. I did not have enough grace in my heart. And I sometimes know that about myself, Miles. It is sometimes lacking, right? We all have to work on ourselves. But I can say that, you know, you have since that day walked the walk and talked the talk. And like Rick Wilson, you know, you guys have been on the blunt end of this, right? It is not a fun existence. It is not a normal existence, but you guys are out there doing it. I want to say thank you. Everybody, Miles's new book is Blowback. You can get it wherever fine books are sold. Miles, before we let you go, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Miles Taylor USA. Same thing on Instagram. And, and again, Reed, I'll just say immensely grateful for what you've done to protect our country. And, and I'll add a, just a final note on what you said. I think it's really important for on all sides us to realize that redemption is really possible. And I mentioned Stephanie Grisham earlier. That was a person who came out and blasted me and made my life miserable after I turned against the president. I mean, we think death threats against our family probably resulted from the things she was saying. But you know what? The moment she turned on Trump, I said, we got to take whoever can help us win this fight. And you guys have done a great job and getting folks to join the coalition and very grateful for you, Reed. So thank you. No, listen. And again, it is a coalition. We've talked about this before, gang. Remember that coalitions do not work because everybody agrees on everything. Coalitions work because everybody agrees on one thing, and that's democracy in this time. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram and threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Miles Taylor, thank you for joining me. Thank you for your work and good luck on your book tour.
Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.